Hey, podcast listeners, Mara Davis here. Here's an exclusive preview episode of the new series, Elizabeth the First. It's the new podcast from Imperative Entertainment about a truly remarkable woman, Elizabeth Taylor the very first influencer. Katy Perry is such a fan. She is hosting this series and you will learn so much about this legend. If you love this preview, there's nearly 10 hours of audio from the full series available where you can binge right now. Just search Elizabeth the First on any podcast platform or click the link in the description of this episode. But let's begin your preview right now. So Elizabeth was really like, she was ready to be married to this big showman and, and, and have her life be his life and not have to make movies. And so, you know, he got her out of the contract, said, let her finish Cat on Hutch and Roof and, and be done with it. Now, come on, she's been working for you guys forever. So Mike got her out of it. We don't have, unfortunately, the memorandum from that period that would have maybe correspondence that would show the back and forth of how those deals were negotiated. There aren't letters, but she does talk about this. Liz, Liz, what about your own career? Uh, Are you going to continue making movies or just be a housewife? I couldn't really um, care less about making movies, to tell you the truth. I consider it much more important to be a good woman than a great actress, or any kind of an actress. In her last two contracts with MGM for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof that she actually signed less than a month before Mike Todd's death, that stipulated, it was essentially a a termination agreement, but that she would do Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and then one more film with MGM to be determined within three years from the end of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof MGM had three years to figure out another film that they would want her to be in. But then Mike tragically died in this horrible plane crash, and it was a terrible loss. And he kind of left her in a precarious financial situation. Mike Todd was wildly successful, but also wildly unsuccessful. He was a a gambler, and he left her with, you know, some debt. And he had given me a 29 carat emerald cut engagement ring which I had to sell because the insurance had a small clause saying that if he were killed in a small aircraft all the insurance would be liquidated so I had $17,000 in the bank to maintain myself a house, rent a house a nanny, a cook, a maid, because I was working, and I had to sell very precious things, which broke my heart. So she kind of was forced to keep going. So she did Butterfield 8, which was the film that MGM wanted her to do, cast her as a call girl, and she did not want to do. She, she always hated that role which she ironically got her first Oscar for. It made me very determined to sort of say, screw you, world, I'm going to get out of this. I was doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. I got over my stutter. I did Butterfield Eight because um, it was a handshake between Mike and the studio, and it was to be my last film with MGM after 18 years. One day on the set, 
one of the vice presidents, a friend of mine, came down with a manila envelope under his arm and said, well, honey, here's your next project. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you're still, you have one more film under your contract. And I said, you, you and, and Mike shook hands that this would be my last film. I was being offered a fortune by Fox to be Cleopatra. And they said, no, no, you, you, uh, you can't do that until you finish this, your obligation. Then your contract will be up. I was so furious. Don't you bastards have any sense of honor? Doesn't a handshake mean anything to you? And they said, no, it has to be on paper, dear. Or I did. Brother Field Aid, and it was my last film at MGM. So I was so young, and I had three children, and I had to assume the role of husband, wife, mother, father, uh, breadwinner, and I just wanted to be taken care of. I missed Mike so much. Although Elizabeth resented playing a high-end prostitute in Butterfield 8, her performance won critical acclaim and her first Oscar. I don't really know how to express my gratitude for this and for everything. I guess all I can do is say thank you. Thank you with all my heart. But what Elizabeth had actually won, had earned by negotiating her exit from MGM with that final film for them was control over her career. And her acting success was the playing card that she was happily willing to fold in order to win the life that she wanted with Mike Todd as a wife and mother. For Elizabeth Taylor, forging a multi-million dollar acting career was not her winning hand. But because of Mike's death, of her tragic loss, of the debt left behind, that was a card on the table, and if she played it, she could not only survive, but triumph. As Mike would have seen it as well, Cleopatra was the ace in the hole. The sheer amount of paperwork and back and forth between lawyers, agents, and executives involved in how Elizabeth cut that deal is one of the biggest secrets in the business. Though you might remember $1 million when you hear the words Cleopatra and Elizabeth Taylor, there's much more to the legend than has been told, and it's even more impressive. Elizabeth's archivist found the receipts for the first time ever. This is the full story. She was, I think, starting to try and take control of her life, but then tragedy and life got in the way. She had to change her plans. Whether she would act again, was to be seen, but either way, she would not be beholden to the studio or another company. She could be independent and make those decisions for herself. Um, I finally got away from MGM and was one of the first ones to start my own company and make my own deals and go without an agent. And I enjoyed dealing with the studios and telling them where to go. Uh, that was nice. And I was quite a good businesswoman. 
So with Cleopatra, Elizabeth is finally free of MGM. She can make her own choices, and she uses that power to grab them by the balls. The producers want Elizabeth. Everyone wants Elizabeth. They had tested for other actresses, and hands down, it, it was to be Elizabeth. And they, the budget kept going up and up and up to account for all of this. She may have told the story in a more humble way that she's only offered that outrageous number to get them to go away. But believe me, Elizabeth knew what she was doing. So as an archivist, I was excited to dig into the contracts and start digitizing those, cataloging them. And with Cleopatra, of course, I had this, as most of the public does, this legend in my mind of the million dollars. And I don't know if I expected to just see, you know, one million dollars there uh, right in the first line for the compensation. But, you know, maybe a little part of me expected to see something like that. So I start reading through the Cleopatra contract, and I see that the base compensation was $125,000 to be paid over a period of uh, 10 weeks, with a six-week time for, I guess, off, off time. So it would be a total 16-week production. And so I thought to myself, well, that's not really close to a million dollars. In fact, that's her that was her compensation for Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and for Butterfree Old Eight for her previous films. Now, granted, the, those were paid out at a lower rate and over a longer period of time, um, but still that struck me as a little odd. And so then I keep reading down and I see another number, which was 50000 and that was per week of overtime. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the prestigious Just Capital 2024 seal. Bank of America is ranked number one in the banking industry and number one for their ongoing commitment to workers, offering best-in-class benefits, including a minimum wage of $25 an hour by 2025. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. Cleopatra. The production is, was famously a, a fiasco, a mess it took over two years. She couldn't have known that this film would take as long as it did and that she would be getting like 70 weeks of, of overtime. I mean, that, that, that explains it, right, of how she was ended up, it wasn't just a million dollars because at the end of the day, she ended up getting several million dollars when all things were said and done. So it was even arguably better. I started doing some more digging and ended up finding something that had actually been in the public for quite a long time, which is Walter Wangers, who was the producer, again, of Cleopatra, his production diary, which he published shortly, I believe, before his death in the late 1960s. And so I thought, okay, if he you know, must have been in the room when these negotiations were happening as the, the liaison between the studio and like there, there has to be something in there. And sure enough, there was a lot of great information that we were able to glean from that. One being that the process of negotiation took almost a full year from the time where Elizabeth said, okay, I'll do it for a million dollars to actually signing a contract was something like 11 months. 
there's a, a kind of a famous uh, video of her in the, the 20th Century Fox offices signing a contract for uh, Cleopatra, and this was in October of 59. Well, it turns out that was just a publicity stunt. She wasn't actually signing anything. The picture casting achievement of the year is about to become a recorded fact as producer Walter Wanger introduces Elizabeth Taylor to 20th Century Fox executive producer Buddy Adler. The occasion, the Hollywood signing of the exotic Elizabeth for the most exotic role in her career. And the role, Cleopatra. What a role. And Liz is the gal to do it justice. They filmed this so they, they could prove to the investors and to the studio that they really had a star that was interested. They just needed to get the details of the contract finessed and worked out. More months go by, and you can already see that he has some entries in there where he understands that the production is already in trouble. They didn't yet have a full script. The, the organization of the production wasn't really coherent. He clearly had an inkling that things were going to take longer than expected, for one. There was another entry where he was discussing the project with Elizabeth Taylor while she was in New York, and he made a comment about how Elizabeth was complaining about the weather and come down severe bout of pneumonia. Walter writes in this journal that he wonders how Elizabeth is going to fare in London, given that she's already struggling with the weather in New York. And London, of course, is where Cleopatra was originally set to be filmed, and the first part of the production was indeed there. Walter has an entry in which he's looking through the contract and he's trying to see it from Elizabeth's perspective and thinking that it's, it's working out really good for her. And I'm sure this has to do with his knowledge of the production and knowing that it's going to take a lot longer than 16 weeks. I don't think he thought it was going to take two years, but he knew it was going to take longer than 16 weeks. And I'm sure that was part of the deal where they said, look, you're guaranteed this $125,000. And Elizabeth also made remarks that she was okay with it being spread out because she wanted to put most of it anyway into a trust for her children. So it didn't all need to be up front. They massaged the deal in this way by saying, it's going to take longer and you're going to be getting that $50,000 a week. Six to seven million. The seven million dollars is what we should be celebrating. The seven million she received for the picture is the equivalent of 60 million today. Long before George Lucas had cut his legendary Star Wars deal, or Jack Nicholson got a savvy back end for his Joker role in Batman, that paid out handsomely. Elizabeth Taylor negotiated a record salary contract, back end ownership of the gross profits, and a crafty accumulation of overtime that paid out handsomely. Because she knew more about what it took to make a movie than any director, producer, or studio executive in the industry. Elizabeth did it all first. Cleopatra was by far the most expensive film ever made up until Kevin Costner and Waterworld in the 90s. Remember, when they started shooting Cleopatra in London, the world hated her. They were still against her. It was during her marriage to Eddie Fisher. She had broken up America's sweetheart couple. And this is what she was facing in her private life while she's going to shoot the biggest film that's ever happened. But as it turned out on Cleopatra, 
The press was the least of anyone's problems, especially Elizabeth. In her friendship with Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth had already seen how tragedy can swallow an artist. In every moment where she had finally gained control and set herself on the path of happiness, the future she believed in was ripped away. With every tragic turn, the stakes kept being raised. After surviving the gauntlet of the loss of her husband, the only life-and-death stakes that could top that were her own. That's the one where I almost died. The escalating, behind-the-scenes catastrophes with Cleopatra began with the director's and studio's ludicrous decision to film the epic story of an ancient Egyptian queen in the gloomy bogs of England. How can you make England in the winter look like the Mediterranean? Fox made the ludicrous decision to shoot Cleopatra in, the, in England in the dead of winter. That is just the first step of an escalating budget and so many catastrophes that that film had. The making of Cleopatra is more dramatic, more wild, more wasteful. I think that all the studio heads at Fox were just running around like with chick like chickens with their heads cut off. It just kept growing and they just kept throwing more money at the problems with Elizabeth and everything that was going on and the investment they had made, it just snowballed and it kept getting worse and worse. But the, the, really the first bad decision was when they decided to shoot Cleopatra in England in the winter. Back in the United States after her brush with death in London, Elizabeth Taylor is carried from her plane in a wheelchair. The arrival at New York of the actress who was in England to play the title role in Cleopatra is graphically filmed. She takes the excitement like the true trooper she is, though she's still weak from her bout with an exceptionally virulent form of pneumonia. Elizabeth almost immediately gets sick. They end up not even filming any of her scenes. I think she, the only parts that she filmed were like costume tests. She gets better, she comes back to work, and then she gets pneumonia again, and then she gets really sick and has to have an emergency tracheotomy. I knew I had pneumonia, and I was in an oxygen tent, and I had a nurse, and she kept checking me and removed all my nail polish, and one time she checked me, and I, my nails were turning blue, and she dialed the operator and said, is there any doctor registered in the hotel? Well, it just so happened that I was in the Oliver Messel suite, and there was the Oliver Messel um, party room two steps away, and they were giving an engagement party for a young Welsh doctor. And in the room was Dr. Lord Evans, and he came screaming in the room, and by this time, I'm all blue. And he picked me up by the feet. He was six foot four. He picked me up by the feet and shook me like a rag doll, expecting me to lose some of the stuff that was clogged up in my lungs. Nothing. He pounded my ribs. Well, you should react to the loosening up of it. 
and regurgitate. Then the thing that you react to the most is pain, where they try and gouge your eyes out. That's the last resort. And he did that. And I opened my eyes and I looked up at this man and I said, What the fuck are you doing? Excuse me, audience. And then I went, There's my tracheotomy. I'm very proud of that. She literally went through that tunnel of white light, which at that time people didn't talk about, and she saw Mike Todd. In the era of Elizabeth's fame, celebrities didn't share their honest emotional or especially spiritual experiences, no matter how shallow or how deep, ever. No one in the public eye did. To share something as intimate as a near-death experience was unthinkable for anyone in the spotlight. But they were not Elizabeth Taylor. As the press declared, most beautiful woman in the world and the highest paid actor in history, Elizabeth's spotlight was the brightest of all. How did she survive and thrive where others would have been destroyed? Authenticity. And a brilliant technique that came from her soul. Elizabeth's unique ability to not care about her press, to not let it define her, while simultaneously using it wherever possible to both share who she was and advance the spotlight onto those who were less fortunate, who actually needed to have their stories told, was her most remarkable skill. It was a gift. Born from total unflinching honesty. I really wanted to die. And when I almost did die in London, I went through the tunnel experience, out-of-body experience. And when I came to, there were 11 people in the room, and I had to put my hand over the tracheotomy. And I told them the story of being in the tunnel and seeing the light, which was warm and welcoming, but so white. But it wasn't cold, it was warm. And these shadowy figures going different ways until Mike came to me and embraced me and I knew I was home. Mike said, you have to go back. And she was like, I'm not going back. I mean, Mike had only died a little bit earlier and she was grieving hard still and she wanted to be with him. And so, but he pushed her to go back. And I sobbed with joy. And he said, no, baby. You have to go back. I'll be here waiting for you. But you have something to do, something very important. And you can't come over yet. When your time is right, I will be here. But you have to fight with all your life. What's in you now? Gather up your strength, your will, your love, and turn around and fight with all the determination you're fighting to stay here and go back. And I said that I didn't want to. And he physically 
I remember his touch. He physically turned me around and I could see the hospital room and me lying in the bed. After five minutes, I was back in my body. I'd been dead for five minutes. Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit JustCapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. 